Hello again and welcome to Kendrew's Real Dirt, the garden show. On this week's show, it's me, Ken. I'm going to tell you about uh, what has happened to me in the first few weeks of May 2013. I've been traveling and between May 3rd and May 15th, I was in California and Seattle, Washington, and I was then in New York, and then in New Jersey, and then in New York, and then in Montreal, Canada, and then in New York, and then in New Jersey. It's hard to know where I am, but I'm speaking to you from New Jersey. And I'm going to tell you about my whirlwind trips. Well, first, I went to California. And I visited my dear friend Tom Coster. Tom has the tidiest garden <laughs> I think I've ever seen. It's it's a very small garden. I, I think it's probably less than a thousand square feet. But I I know he spends more time in that garden than I spend on my acre plus in New Jersey. And it and it frankly it looks it. It's so neat and so precise and i don't i don't mean in a you know it's not uh, completely obsessive but it, it's it's quite wonderful to have a space one can control but then again there's that other thing he can't just buy anything he wants to although he does buy a lot of stuff and in berkeley and he's on the actually on the border of oakland and berkeley in oakland in rock ridge he can grow things in containers and leave them out year-round that, of course, we can't. He also has some things in the ground, like Rex begonias in the ground. He has that wonderful begonia uh, with the spirally leaves that's called escargot. It's a perfect name because it does look like giant snails, flattened snail swirls. And uh, his is by the former garage, and, and now that garage has been turned into a potting shed in the back, and a garden room in the front just a wonderful extra it's actually an extra bedroom and has a desk and uh, storage i think storage oh that's what i want cash and storage always the most appropriate gifts for anyone everybody can use more storage well tom and i also went to visit marcia donahue the great sculptor and potter and uh, lately she's been mixing naturally colored clays in in her work and she's made some wonderful incredible new things she had, she had a a faux bois log with fungi uh, that she made and she's been making some some uh, trunks of trees uh, in her in a new version of her bambusa ceramica her ceramic bamboo and all the colors and the lines in the wood quote-unquote, and the fungi are made with colored clays. It's really something to see. She also has chickens, lots of chickens, and they, they go around the garden and do what chickens do. They look for bugs and they scratch, and she's living with that good thing and problem thing, and they all seem to know their names, and they come, and some of them will sit on her lap, and some of them won't. But they're very friendly and very beautiful, different chickens. As Nearly everyone around the country is into chickens now. That's one of the hot things. She also has, uh, I mean, incredible plants. And again, in a climate where you can grow just about anything, it's cool enough for things like roses and even some lilacs, and it's warm enough for tropicals like the begonia to stay out all year. And she has some restios. 
And those are plants in the family Restionaceae, and uh, we call them for, their nickname is Restios. And it's a family of perennial evergreen rush-like flowering plants that are native to the southern hemisphere. And they grow from ooh, a couple of inches tall to nine feet tall. And uh, based on the evidence from fossil pollens, uh, the Restionaceae likely originated some 60 million years ago during the Cretaceous period. Uh, in the east, we have plants like horsetail, the Equisetum, that are very similar, but the Restios are not hardy. And one Restio that she has is Canamoas virgata, and I think that's just about the most beautiful plant I've ever seen. I say that, and then, you know, I'll see something else and say that about something else. But the Restios drive me crazy, and I've tried to grow them, bring them into the house for the winter. And you can imagine with uh, limited success. The next day, Marsha, Tom, and I hooked up with Brandon Tyson and Noel Gilligan to hang out on 4th Street, and we visited the Gardener, the most chic store I know. The store used to serve gardeners more, but they've changed with the times and the demands, and despite having fewer tools and plants, they still have the most beautiful things for sale. Well, they have soaps and string lights and bowls and tables and furniture and outdoor furniture, but the buyers for the store just have exquisite taste. There's nothing in the store that you don't want, but there's plenty that you can't afford, or at least I can't. But I was being very conservative. I didn't want to buy a lot of things because I still had to go to Seattle and then back, and frankly, I'm, I'm tired of uh, shoving stuff into the overhead, or now we have to pay for, for luggage, but that's, that's not the problem. It's just, you know, there's too many plants. We visited a few gardens that afternoon, including Tom's, and then we went to Jana Olson's unique site. Uh, it's the site of her 1911 Arts and Crafts house, a, a rambling, I'd, I'd say huge, but maybe it's the siting, and it's the largest garden I've ever seen in Berkeley. Now, I'm not sure exactly how large it is. It's a, it's a very big property for the city, but because it's a ravine, she can garden on these steep sloping sides and in that way she has much more land than one would say in a quarter or three quarters of an acre. There's a, uh, a creek that emerges from below her house which is on the top of a hill and spills out from under her house and down uh, into the ravine then continues on down the hill uh, in Berkeley and it's it's an amazing garden as you can imagine. Uh, very hard to describe, I have to say. Well, the next day, Tom and I went to the Berkeley Botanical Garden. Uh, Tom volunteers there in the shop, I think once a week. And the, the Berkeley Botanical Garden is world famous for its cacti and succulent garden, but there are also rhododendron areas. There's a huge area with plants of the Southern Hemisphere. There's a native plant garden and a, a very large jungly shaded garden with a pond. And of course, I just snapped my camera and took tons of pictures uh, of plants I'd like to know and plants I'd like to grow and plants I'd like to record uh, in digital photographs. Then back to Marsha's. Marsha opens her 
gallery slash garden to visitors from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. every Sunday, nearly every Sunday, and she has for 20 years. So visitors come by every week and stroll through the garden, ask questions, and sometimes they buy some of Marsha's magnificent art. Well, the next day, off to Seattle to visit more gardens and to give a lecture. I was picked up at the airport by Greg Graves, who took me to the Chase Garden. The Chase Garden is a garden conservancy garden with a remarkable view of Mount Rainier. Uh, it's an alpine and woodland garden in Orting, Washington, about an hour from Seattle. Then we went to Greg's incredible garden. And his is one of those places that, and I'm sure you visited, visited one of these or more, that you cannot believe that a couple of humans, Greg and Gary, can handle. It's, I cannot imagine. I mean, these people have like 12 full-time jobs. Just gardening in, on the location would be, well, it's more than a full-time job. It's got a woodland. He's got chickens, rescue chickens, uh, and little ponds, but the plantings and the planting beds are exquisite and the combinations of plants are incredible. And Greg also propagates plants. He, he sort of can't help it. You know how that is. Maybe you don't, but once you start, I mean, you dig something up or you divide something and what are you going to do? Throw it out? You're supposed to, I guess, as good gardeners, but I can't do it and neither can Greg. So he has a little specialty nursery and people come by from time to time and sometimes groups come by to buy some of the incredible plants that he grows now up until that visit as i said i've been i had been pretty good i only bought two plants one to give to someone in seattle and one that had to come home with me i went to the dry garden after visiting marcia's uh, right before the day before I left, and Dry Garden is a nursery that specializes in cacti and succulents, but other weird and wonderful plants. And of course, two plants leapt into my arms. But when I told Greg I didn't want to take any plants, I didn't want to buy any plants or anything, he just he just wouldn't hear of such a thing. And the plants started to leap off the benches into a box, and he collected he collected mostly plants that I didn't know. And we'd gone around the garden and I said, oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know about that. And he said, oh, you have to grow that. Or, oh, I know that one, but I don't know that one. And I have one in the same genus, but this species is new to me. Had to grow that. So I ended up with a, a full box of plants and, not know, and I didn't know exactly what I was going to do with them. Well, next, Greg whisked me off to Richie Steffen's little garden. And it's, I could call it a driveway planting. His old driveway is filled with containers. Uh, it, well, he also had fern tables. That's something that seems to be happening uh, in the Pacific Northwest. People are growing these tables, either stone tables or uh, a log sliced lengthwise so it's flat on top and standing on iron legs. And they're, they have miniature gardens. I don't want to call them fairy gardens, but that's kind of what they are because uh, that's another thing that's getting pretty popular. And uh, also, Richie had something I, I've not seen before. I've heard about it. He was growing a lot of alpine plants in terracotta sewer pipes that are standing on end and filled with growing medium. So they have really deep, deep medium, like they would in nature, because they have often those plants have very deep roots. And uh, they're just 
the little opening of sewer pipes with little tiny plants, all different incredible plants. Richie is one of the gardeners at the Elizabeth C. Miller Garden in Seattle, and he also grows tropical rhododendrons, and, and those plants, which often have huge, fragrant flowers, were pushing new growth, and the new growth is, well, the flowers are wonderful. They're giant, gigantic trumpets, much bigger than the rhododendrons we know, and as I mentioned, fragrant, kind of a lily fragrance, most of them, and there's white ones in different colors. But the new growth, I think, is as beautiful and colorful as those flowers. So I had to take some pictures of those, too. They're like green and and celadon and silver and ruby. That evening, we met up with my friend Riz Reyes. He's a talented plant geek who has been a guest on this show. And the next day, the day of the lecture, Riz took me to Kathy and Ed Fries Garden, another remarkable discovery. Plants grow so uniquely well in the Pacific Northwest. Little things I grow in New Jersey are huge there. Almost everything. But one thing they have trouble with growing are the hostas, because they have, among other things, snails and slugs. Now, Kathy Fries invented a new way of dealing with this problem. And well, she had a funnel garden, and she had all these different antique funnels she'd found at flea markets and garage sales, tag sales, and they were on stakes up in the air, three to five feet tall, high, and these little funnels were planted with miniature hostas. And she lined the edges, the top edge of the funnels, with copper foil. Now, copper foil produces a small electrical charge when, the, when slugs and snails try to go over the edge, and it repels those mollusks. But it's a very cool idea to see all these little hostas and funnels floating up in the air, and that idea has been copied by other gardeners in the area. And Kathy was telling me that the price of antique funnels at flea markets much to her dismay, have skyrocketed. And people say, oh, do you know what a funnel garden is? And she's, she said, what can you do when you start a trend? Oh, well, I'm giving her credit right now, right here. One of Kathy's special interests is engaging children in gardening and nature. And in one area of her garden, she has created another kind of planter, another kind of table. It's a round planted table of woodland plants and hanging above the table is a is something that she can place a giant magnifying lens in it's a holder for a giant magnifying lens and kids can come and look at the plants from above and see them uh, enlarged by the lens now the table the round table turns so as kids look through the lens they can turn the table and see different plants as they pass below the lens and as you might have suspected she stores the lens somewhere else so that the sun doesn't burn holes in the plants or burn them up completely after that visit to Kathy's beautiful garden with so many plants that I didn't know orchids and mechanopsis orange mechanopsis and yellow mechanopsis uh, plants I can't grow, and some plants that I do grow, only they're five times as large in her garden. She took me to the Bellevue Botanical Garden, which is most of the import, most important plant places to visit if you're in the Seattle area. The plantings are maintained, for the most part, by volunteers, and they're 
They're so tidy and so perfectly maintained, and they're absolutely extraordinary, and, including what might be the most ambitious perennial border in the United States, designed by Glenn Withy and Charles Price. It's an enormous perennial and shrub border. Uh, I can't even guess how big it is. It's Well, it's, it's probably at least 100 feet long and at least 30 feet deep. It's really amazing on a, on a slope with steps so you can walk right through it. And there I saw more plants that I do grow, only they were twice as large in colonies four times as wide. And that's uh, inspiring and a little depressing. But the climate suits just about all plants perfectly. Now, you know, everywhere you go, gardeners complain. And in the Pacific Northwest, it's no different. They complained about the slugs and the snails a bit, but they say to me, you're so lucky. You can grow tropical plants in the summer on the East Coast because we don't have enough heat and humidity to grow tropical plants. Well, I guess the plants are always greener on the other side of the fence, but frankly, it's on their side of the fence. Uh, people think that it rains in Seattle and in Oregon and Portland all year round, but it doesn't. It, rain, it drizzles and the skies are gray for months through the winter. It's sort of suicide weather. But once the spring comes, it stops raining and it doesn't rain again into the fall. In Seattle, they have 35 inches of rain a year. In my New Jersey garden, I have close to 50. It just happens just about every week. And we have snow, of course. So it, we have precipitation almost year round, except for three weeks in August when everybody just gags all the plants. But in Seattle, they have the, the moist, wonderful winter. And then in the summer, it's super sunny. And it doesn't get hot. And it's dry. So uh, I, I'm surprised when I talk to people and they think that uh, it rains in Seattle year-round. I don't know why that just continues to be the thought, but it isn't the case. Well, that night, I gave a lecture for the Northwest Horticultural Society. And it was standing room only, which is wonderful, over 200 people. And it was one of the best audience I've, audiences I've ever had. It was a wonderful evening with real super plant freaks. I was a little afraid because people there know so much about plants. I mean, you, you can talk Latin all the time. Uh, and, and I thought, oh, am I going to be up to snuff here? But I kind of chilled on that idea and just gave the lecture I planned to give and promoted horticulture and talked about my experiences in New Jersey and talked about uh, Natural Companions, my most recent book, and how Ellen Hoverkamp made her scans and what the scans are telling, the stories are telling. And of course, I try to be entertaining and have plenty of humorous things. And they were wonderful. They just loved it. And it was thrilling. You know, people don't really realize how much an audience contributes to the quality of a lecture. And I've been to so many places where the audience is just speechless, and maybe that's good, but then they get kind of a quieter presentation. And when they're laughing at my jokes or, or leaning forward and everything, you know, that really, that I guess it happens in, in schools too. It makes the teacher more engaged and it makes the lecturer more engaged and more eager to please. Okay, so uh, the next morning, uh, Riz Reyes picked me up on the way to the airport. 
and we I had planned to take kind of a latish mid mid the mid to late morning flight so I might squeeze in one more visit and I hit the Elizabeth C Miller garden this amazing landscape created by the late Elizabeth Miller is in Seattle and it's in a gated community so only 500 people are allowed to visit the garden a year and it's one of the most amazing gardens in the country so I urge you to make a reservation early because if you're going to the, to the Seattle area you have you have to go to the Elizabeth C Miller garden the design is just fantastic and now it's uh, continued in its original style by Richie Steffen the curator and Holly Zip head gardener and they gave me a tour at a little bit of a breakneck speed I was only there for an hour I could have spent hours there and there's a wonderful overlook a patio that overlooks the water and it has one of the best views that you can see in Seattle however it was obscured by fog and I don't mind overcast, as you know, because I can take pictures and I can see everything in the garden without the harsh, dark, contrasty shadows or the, the burnt-out colors, even to my eye. But I think the greatest view is of that garden, not from it. Next, back to the plane, back to New York, then to New Jersey, then to New York, and then to Montreal. I got to tour several private gardens in Montreal. I was hosted by some wonderful ladies. Uh, I lectured to the garden club, and that was followed by a special dinner. Then the next day, a whole day of touring. It, it rained off and on, but we managed to see quite a few gardens and also go to the Montreal Botanical Garden. And that's a public garden considered one of the best in the world. I was handed over to Richard Dion, He's the, uh, he's the horticultural specialist, that's his title. We toured the shade garden, the rhododendron garden, and he took us to the nursery areas. And I met so many plants I'd never seen before. Now, I don't know a lot about rhododendrons, and they can't grow every rhododendron because it's very cold there, but they usually have a guaranteed snow cover, which makes everything below about two feet thrive and everything above two feet suffer. So unless it's a very hardy tree or a very hardy rhododendron, uh, they just can't be there or they won't look very good. Richard is a great communicator and he was he was visibly nervous about that because he his English is, I thought, great, but he was nervous about his English. And I thought, well, we have Latin, but sometimes when he said a Latin name of a plant, I, I know I couldn't understand it. And I, I asked him to repeat it a few times. And I, I said something like, oh, you, the way you pronounce the Latin names. And he said, well, you, you pronounce them with an anglicized accent. You have an anglicized pronunciation of Latin. And what can I say? I thought he had a French way of saying <laughs> the Latin names. And I had trouble understanding them. But... Uh, there's a, there's a lot of tension there between the French and the English ways of speaking. Uh, and the things in Montreal have become quite French, I have to say. There's, uh, there's less uh, 
English and French on, on street signs, and, and the garden is very French. But then again, the Latin names are the Latin names, whether I can understand them or not. And on tags, I could read them all. So regardless of the common names, the Latin names prevailed. The climate in Montreal favors herbaceous plants, as I mentioned, uh, with their nearly guaranteed snow cover. It is cold, but once the ground freezes, it stays frozen. So they don't have that freeze-thaw like I have in New Jersey, where some plants are, like, are really like heaved out of the ground. And plant labels, forget it. They're tossed out of the ground for sure. But, you know, I couldn't bring any plants into the U.S. from Canada. But I learned their names, and I will try to track some of them down. And some I've already tried to track down, and they are really rare plants. Well, now I'm back in the USA, and I will join you again next week for another edition of Ken Drew's Real Dirt, the Garden Show. I hope to have another guest. And thank you so much for joining me today on my whirlwind tour of California, Seattle, New Jersey, New York, and Montreal, Canada. See you then.